Hello, and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we are joined by special guest Erica Goody, who's a CPA, here to talk to us about all the fun stuff we brought up on the previous episodes. Yeah. So we got quite a bit of interest from, I guess it was two episodes ago, on financial checkup time. And you will be happy to know, I know I was, that more than a few of you don't think that talking about money is boring. In (laughs) fact, (laughs) you think it's high time that we all talk more about it. So we decided to invite an actual money expert, i.e. not us, um, a CPA who specializes in our kinds of businesses uh, to join us and talk through some of the questions we were pondering and a few that we heard from you. So not only is Erica Goody a CPA, she trained at KPMG, and she ran financial planning for a $2 billion Walgreens division. But I love, as she says on her website, let's make the money part of your business easy, easy in all caps. So welcome, Erica. We're thrilled to have you. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So good to be here. Uh, I liked your last episode so much, I listened to it twice. Well, there you go. See, it wasn't boring, was it? (laughs) Not at all. I thought it was awesome. (laughs) So where we thought we would start is, you know, we've got people who listen to the show that are kind of just getting started and people who've been running their business for quite a few years. So I wanted to start with people who are, say, in their first couple of years of being soloists, you know, with an expertise business. What are some of the big money decisions that they need to make kind of early on? Yeah, so I think anytime we're all starting out, it you're kind of on this Um, this journey of what your legal entity is and how it pertains to what taxes you pay. And so for, I know you had both talked about jumping into business, knowing exactly what you were going to do and signing on to be an S corp right off the bat. And so if somebody isn't that confident, sometimes we accidentally start businesses. Sometimes we have, um, we are more of a freelancer and then we decide to take the next step and to keep going there. You're kind of on this journey of what um, I would say is sole proprietor to an LLC to an S Corp eventually. If you don't know how far deep you're going, you're kind of going along this this glide path of deciding how far in you're going to um, take your business. And so usually the starting point is a sole proprietorship and and it's when you don't want to hang out there too long. And so you kind of have to decide whether or not you're, you're doing this or you're not doing this. And I always say the moment you decide you're doing this, uh, register an LLC because that actually doesn't change your taxes at all. It just provides you legal protection, like you guys had mentioned before, uh, against your personal assets. So I'm just curious. So what's the difference from the business owner's perspective financially between an LLC and a sub S? Like, why would you, I can, I understand the logical progression, but why would you pick an LLC versus a sub S? So you're actually both. If you're an S corp, a sub S, um, you're actually still an LLC from a legal protection, protection standpoint. The S corp is a federal tax designation. And you're saying, I want you to treat my LLC in this special way called an S-Corp. And so you're you're never not an LLC when you're an S-Corp. You just 
elect a different type of taxation. And so it's when you get to the point that you decide that type of taxation is A, appropriate from a law standpoint, and that you can do the things that need to be done to be that S-Corp, and B, that, um, that you're just at that point where you're at that next step to take that um, S-Corp. That's when you really kind of decide. So I think there's a lot of confusion on what's a what's a federal versus a state designation, what's a tax designation versus a legal designation. And um, and that S-Corp is really specific to federal taxes, um, even though you're still at a state level and a legal level in LLC. Wow. I actually exactly. never knew that. I didn't yeah. even know that. <laughs> I've been an S-Corp for 16 years. I didn't even know that. Well, and, so, and I actually- So you're both ha- still your own LLCs. Well, I actually have another business that's that's not an expertise business. It's a property business, but that's an LLC. And and we did that because the attorney said, this makes sense. You have a partner. This is what we do. But that from when I fill out tax returns, or well, when my accountant fills out tax returns, it's the same. <laughs> it's it, There's no difference yeah. to, to me as the owner of those two businesses. But No, exactly. So everything that we've talked about, the LLC and the S Corp, is all flowing through your personal tax return. So it's all like your your business is not getting taxed. The business is just handing you some information and saying, make sure you pay taxes on this. And so you're taking everything on your personal return. So yeah, you're right. Whether it's an LLC or an S Corp, you still recognize it on your 1040 on your personal tax return. It's just a matter of how much taxes you pay on each of those. And so while we're on that topic then, can you, is there ever a scenario where for expertise businesses, it makes sense to go all the way to a C Corp? Mm, I want to say my gut says no, but I do think that there's some probably some specific reasons you would go to an S Corp as your business evolves and depending on how far your expertise um, develops into different products. And so first on a, on a C-Corp, the, the tricky part of a C-Corp is that um, there's a, something called double taxation. Mm-hmm. So everything we've talked about from an LLC standpoint and an S-Corp, um, nobody uses this term, but it's basically single taxation. It's just you're paying it on your personal tax return. What an S-Corp or a C-Corp is, and a C-Corp is every big corporation you drive by down Main Street, every Walmart, Walgreens, Target, everything is a C-Corp. And what's happening there is the IRS is first taxing the business. And then when the business pays out dividends, then the person receiving the dividends has to again pay tax on that dividend. And so there's where your double taxation goes. If you are both the owner, business owner, and the receiver of that, you're paying double tax. And so, A, you always want to avoid double tax. (laughs) But there are some reasons where you don't want to take money out of the business. So in expertise land, in LLC and S-Corp land, you're getting paid out and truly whether you pay yourself the money or not, whether it stays in your business account or goes to your personal account, you're paying taxes on the profit that you showed every single year, no matter whether the money left your business account and went into your personal account or stayed in your business account. And so the difference with a C-Corp is 
the reason you wouldn't want to pay out everything is you might have a big cash outlay. And so when we think about a big box store, um, they don't want to pay out all of their cash every year to their shareholders. They would have nothing left. And um, whereas they don't want to pay tax on that, they're going to pay tax, but they don't necessarily want to put the cash outlay to their investors. And so the only one of the only reasons I can see where an expertise business would want to become a C-Corp is if they wanted to do some massive, probably like a tech development and build an app to support their their business or that they would sell to their to their um, clients and that it would be a huge cash outlay and they don't want to pay tax on that in 2022 because they know that they're going to use it in 2023 for this huge app development. And so, and I'm talking like big hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars. It's not um, tens of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. And so it's really a, a math problem between you and your accountant to decide, here's my trajectory and here's my plan for the next you know, five years on what I want to build my business as. And if I have this big app that I want to build, here's how I'm going to use the cash. And does it make more sense to be taxed once on it or to be taxed twice on it? Because I might not actually pay myself the money um, at the end of the year, because I know I'm going to use it two years, two years down the road. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. So let's let's take the C corp off the table because that's probably not going to be that common for our listeners. Right. So if you've got an LLC or an S corp, at what point do you start paying yourself a salary? Mm -hmm. So the big rule with being an S corp is the IRS requires you to pay yourself what they call a quote reasonable compensation, and if you can't pay yourself a reasonable compensation, uh, you should not be an S-Corp. It is not time for you to be an S-Corp yet. And the way I help explain to people what a, quote, reasonable compensation is, is that if you wanted to sit on a beach and drink Mai Tais all day and do zero work in your business, and so you had to then hire somebody to do all the work that you were doing, how much would that person cost you? And that would be your reasonable compensation. And that's a silly example. But what they're really trying to get to is on an on the open market, if you were an employee for a different company, what would you pay yourself? What would you be paid? And so that's that reasonable compensation piece that's required of an S-Corp. Um, if, you, if you're really looking to get audited, a great way to get audited is to make yourself an S-Corp and then not pay yourself as a W-2 employee because that <laughs> yeah. will flag really fast with the, with the IRS. Pro tip. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. So at, at what point when, when you know, we're starting this business or after we've been doing it for a couple of years and we have some continuity and some kind of regularity to revenue and expenses, when do we or should we start worrying about what I think about is processes, like processes for taxes, processes for paying ourselves, processes for managing our money? Like, do we do that like right at the beginning or do we grow into it? How, how do you usually see that? Um, how I see it versus what I prefer. <laughs> uh, so, <yeah. laughs> Preference So I think good. we all start. <laughs> yes. So I think I see it in a lot of ways where we're all just, um, we're figuring it out in year one. And I think we're all allowed to 
use our time to figure it out. Uh, What I like to tell my clients and what I walk my clients through is setting up a process as soon as possible. And I'm really big on paying yourself a consistent salary, not necessarily varying with your revenue stream, because with um, consultants, expertise businesses, coaching businesses, you get these roller coaster spikes of revenue. It's just the nature of the it's just the nature of the beast where you'll get $40,000 in one quarter and $10,000 in the next quarter and $100,000 in the following. And so that's really hard to navigate as a person with a mortgage and car payments and grocery bills. And so what I try to do is we forward look and find a consistent dollar value salary, whether you're an LLC or an S-corp to pay yourself every single month so that you as the receiver of income from your business has consistency. Um, Because so many of us left big corporate jobs or not even big corporate jobs, just jobs where you got a salary the same amount every month. And you have to go into this business where you're not getting the same revenue every single month. And we're just trying to create some consistency. So any process you can put in place that helps you pay the same dollar value gives your personal self consistency while your expertise business is more of a roller coaster on the revenue side. So it's a discipline is what I was thinking as you were saying that. It, it At least for myself, it feels very disciplined when I pay myself the same amount every month. I can bonus myself if I need to do mm-hmm. that, but by paying it every month, I can rely on it that I know what I'm going to have to be able to pay whatever I owe. Absolutely. Yeah. And so we try to pick a number that we know you can pay yourself every single month. It's not going to make you worry. You set up this dollar about amount. And then to your point, Rochelle, and at the end of the quarter, or at the end of the six months or year, whatever you decide, if you made more money than that, hopefully you did. Hopefully you picked an amount that wasn't causing you to um, bounce off the bottom of your bank account. <laughs> Then you get to bonus yourself. <laughs> That's definitely better than bouncing the bottom of your bank account. Yes. <laughs> yes, that is what we try to avoid. And even after that, we try to build up a little bit of a nest egg. Should something happen, um, you have some money built up to pay yourself. If you aren't able to take on new clients, if you have a health scare, if something happens in your life where you need to stop working for two months, you can still, as the business owner, take that amount of income in those off months. Gotcha. So so that's salary. Let's talk about the big kahuna, which taxes. How do we, how, what, what are some um, systems or processes or best practices to make sure that any surprise factor in April is manageable, that we've, we've prepared for it? Mm-hmm. So always set aside Um, what you need for taxes. And I think um, if you're an S-corp, that looks like two ways. If you're an S-corp, you're paying yourself a W-2 salary. And so you're naturally withholding taxes on that portion of your salary. Just if you you got a job at Target and they paid you a salary, they would take taxes away from that um, direct deposit. You're doing the same for yourself there. So that portion of your salary is already withheld from taxes. The other portion, which we call the owner distribution, above and beyond that, it's the profit that you make above your salary, that you need to withhold, that you need the discipline of withholding yourself 
um, and actually paying the IRS on a quarterly basis, these estimated quarterly tax payments, so that you're paying it along the way and there are no surprises in April. As long, as long as you're paying it each quarter and the right amount of withholding, you should owe either nothing, get a small refund, or maybe owe a little bit at the at, in April. But we try to always avoid these four-figure surprises that you're writing a check for in April. Well, one of the things, I think we talked about it on the prior show, is that people have spouses and maybe you're the person that has the irregular income and the spouse has a steady paycheck, or maybe you're both in some kind of LLC or sub S where you're never entirely sure until the end of the year exactly what your taxes will be. What, what can people do in, the, in those situations to try to anticipate and, you know, not just intellectually, but like physically stashing the money away so it's earmarked for taxes. What, what can they do? So you should be able to actually know what you will owe, owe in taxes. And if you work with a, with a CPA who's willing to <clears throat> do that with you, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of relationships with CPAs where you're just sending them a, a packet of documents in February and they're sending you back something in April and you're either happy about it or sad about it. But if you find if you're able to find a CPA or a tax preparer who's willing to have a mid-year conversation with you that you can actually not when it's the middle of busy season explain your business to them and have them give you a recommendation based on real numbers on what you should withhold, you can get to the right amount throughout the year. And then to put that money aside, um, A, you can physically put it into a different bank account just so it's out of sight and it's out of mind. I think that gives a lot of people peace to know that that money has been moved out of my operating business checking account and into a different account. But we really shouldn't be holding on to it for more than three months. Um, there. The IRS requires you to send quarterly estimated tax payments. And if you don't do that, that's where you get these big end of year um, surprises. And not just the surprise, but there's also a penalty for not paying enough taxes at the point that you file your tax return. And so you can avoid a little bit of a penalty too, as long as you're sending it on a quarterly basis. Hmm. You know, it's interesting because I just had that conversation with my accountant last week. And I have to say it was hugely helpful because I literally couldn't make my brain figure it out. I know it's math. I'm not bad at that kind of math, but I just couldn't figure it out. So I finally just dumped everything into a Word document, said we have this, 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 sent sent a bunch of statements. And lo and behold, the CPA came back and said, this is what to do. Here's your formula. And it's so freaking easy easy when you hand it off to a professional expert um, and you do it in in May rather than in, say, November or God forbid, you know, March. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Could we loop back to something that is just so I'm just so bad at all of this stuff. I, I 16 years ago or whatever it was, 2006, I kind of like set it and forget it in terms of the business designation and you know my approach to dealing with all this. And I haven't really changed anything or looked at it or thought about it since. Um, so I'm a little bit familiar with how things work for me as an S-Corp and as a W-2 of my own company and payroll and distributions and all that. How does it work for an LLC? So I'm sure a lot of people listening would perhaps consider that 
as the best choice for them right now. What is, how does it work? Like, are you a 1099 or like, how do you, or do you just take money out of your business account and, and hopefully you're, you're paying your estimated taxes? Yeah, actually, actually the, uh, the latter is you, so you're not a W-2 employee on your LLC. If you're an LLC and you're paying yourself as a W-2 employee, stop doing that because <laughs> that will flag as well. Um, you're literally just taking money out of the bank account as owner distributions. And so it's literally as simple as taking money from the business checking account and putting it in your personal um, checking account. It's not necessarily that that transfer isn't what you're taxed on. That's just you paying yourself. What you're taxed on is what shows up on your profit and loss statement at the end of the year. Right. So so whatever profit the business made, including what you paid yourself. So like you're not, that's not considered an expense, right? Correct. Okay. So in an LLC. In an LLC, right. So, right. Because I, I think, I think I'm right. If as a, as a W-2 of an S-corp, my salary is considered an expense. Correct. Okay. Yes. All right. That makes sense. So it's kind of like LLC is kind of like simpler in a way where, mm-hmm. you know, and, it's, and you just like clients put money in your, your business or you deposit client checks in your business bank account. I guess, but guess you could deposit it right in your own account, right? Like, is there a difference? I guess that would be crazy, but. Oh, so there's a good reason not to do that is that when you start mixing, so your the business bank account has the LLC's name attached to it and the EIN attached to it. Oh, right. Okay. And and so what that helps to distinguish is if somebody ever comes and sues you for giving them bad expertise advice, um, A, the LLC protects you against your personal assets, assets being included in that um, lawsuit. But when you start depositing things into personal account, it's almost like you're saying, well, my business and my personal is blended. And so that litigation, then it also becomes blended because you haven't treated your business like a single entity. Right. So for tax reasons, it might not make a difference, but it's, but for liability standpoint, it would be crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, wait, so I have one more question on that same train of thought then. So if you have an LLC and, and you can't pay yourself a W-2, does that mean no FICA at all? Or do you pay a self-employment tax on the back end? Yep. You pay self-employment tax on everything in the LLC. And so uh, ah. if you're just an LLC, and so let's let's use real numbers. If you uh, brought in $100,000 of revenue and you spent um, $20,000 in expenses, and so you had $80,000 of profit at the end of the year, you would pay your income tax, your federal income tax on that $80,000. Let's pretend it's 24%. And then you would also pay your self-employment tax, which is FICA, Social Security, Medicare, all those those words kind of are the same. And people use different words, but they're all meaning the same self-employment tax. And that's another 15.5%. And then on top of that, you're paying state income tax. And so it really, it could easily add up to 40 to 50%, depending on what state you're in, mm-hmm. um, in total taxes. So out of the $80,000 of profit you made, you might need to pay thirty dollars to $40,000 in taxes. Now in fact, I'm seeing. <laughs> yeah, that, that, now that you described it like that, that is why my advisors way back in 2006 advised me to go with an S-Corp. Because they looked at my my 
projected income for the, you know, like, well, how much do you think you're going to make and how much, ex- what are you going to have in expenses? And they kind of like did some back of the napkin calculations and they're like, well, you could save a bunch on, on, uh, FICA if you went with an S corp paid yourself as a W2. Yeah. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So, yeah. So let's use that same example and say, okay, so if you are doing $80,000 in profit, but really I will use a, an accountant for an example, but really I could, I could actually pay an accountant $40,000 to do everything that I did to get that $80,000. And I could sit with my feet up on my desk the rest of the, for the whole year. And so what I would say, if I wanted to be an S corp in the, with those numbers is I'm going to pay myself $40,000 as a W-2 salaried employee, and I'm going to pay all of those taxes we just talked about on that $40,000. So it's going to be federal income tax, self-employment, or it's called FICA on your W-2, but it's the same 15.5% and my state income tax. And so now I have $40,000 of profit as the owner left over, and all I pay on that is my federal income tax and my state income tax, just as a normal business owner getting, you would get a K-1 for that. And what you save is that 15% of self-employment tax. Right. As long as you're, as long as the amount that you're paying yourself in salary is a reasonable compensation yeah. for what you're doing. Right. Exactly. Exactly. If I said, oh, my W-2 would be $10,000, the IRS would come in and go, <laughs> you're a joke. It's not $10,000. <laughs> and there's a lot of court cases that will back that up. <laughs> Well, so, um, Jonathan, did you have more on that before I segue? Nope. Go for it. Yeah, because, I mean, as I'm listening to that, of course, my next question is I'm thinking about, okay, so the business is doing better. At what point do we start thinking about some tax-effective ways to stash money away, like for retirement, through the business? And I'm already hearing the difference between the LLC and sub S. I'm curious on your answer. Like, when do we start thinking about it? And and what do we do? What what kind of options can we look at based on the kind of organization we have, a sole, sole proprietorship, LLC, or sub S? Mm-hmm. So everybody has the option, and everybody listening to this has the options of a traditional IRA and a Roth IRA. Um, those max out at $6,000. And so if you're looking to stash away more than $6,000. And obviously that's a personal preference, what you're using your your um, your business income for. Now, if you want to use your business income for paying off your mortgage as fast as you can, obviously that's kind of where the lines of personal financial goals and your business profit kind of blur the lines there. Um, but if you're looking to just go straight to retirement and you want to do more than $6,000 per year, you have options like a solo 401k, a SEP IRA, a simple IRA, a safe harbor 401k. And those all, there's four, at least four different options. And those all have different um, qualities and requirements that are really specific to um, what type of business you're running. And so you have to be really careful and really know, work with somebody who can explain those to you. So you're getting the best option for your business. Um, my, my preference, especially for somebody in an expertise business where maybe they're a, um, a soloist would be to look at a solo 401k. You can only have a solo 401k if you and or your spouse are the only employees or owners of the business. If you have any employees, not in count, not counting contractors, um, you 
uh, you can you cannot have a solo 401k. But if you have no other employees, there's an option there that allows you to save almost up to $60,000 into retirement every year, which you can't even do as a corporate employee. Yeah. I mean, when I learned about solo 401ks, like my eyes bugged out. It was, <laughs> it's such a great way, at least for me, to stash money away. But there's, I think there's a mindset thing going on here too. I don't know if you found this with your clients, but when I made that first 401k contribution, I felt like a baller. Like I really did. Like I had this plan. I had a salary. I was tucking money away. It was like I felt like I had like a real business. And it for me, it sounds silly, but it was this mindset shift that was very empowering. Yeah, because it, it's it's real. You're you're doing more than just paying yourself a monthly salary. And I think so often in in a when we become our own businesses, we get in this. A, we get in the mindset of like, I just have to run this thing and I don't look up. I just have my head down running this business or we're, I'm just paying myself as much as I can whenever I can. But when you kind of take a step back and say, well, I can use this to change my trajectory or my lifestyle or my retirement plan. And I could use this money that I'm, I'm making in this business. And the more profit I make means that I could pay off my mortgage sooner. I could save for 529s and my college savings, um, retirement, or I could just save it in a taxable account and retire when I'm 50. Like it's all of these, you become the, the author of your own financial destiny when you look at it that way. Well, that's why I wanted us to have these conversations about money, because I think that uh, to your point, it's just so easy you know, to just put our heads down and worry about client X or buyer A when, you know, the business has a purpose. It, it has a purpose in terms of the change you want to make in the world. And it has a purpose in terms of how it impacts your life and the life of your family or your, you know, the, your immediate loved ones. So I just, I, I, I want us to have more of these kinds of conversations where we start to think bigger than just getting by. Yeah, absolutely. Is there an obvious flag? Is there is there some trigger that that should cause someone to take a step back? So like you 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 your first year you go out, you're struggling, you're hustling to you know, to get any clients you can. You're like, holy crap, I actually this is actually working, and you start to get some stability and maybe some recurring um, repeat business from your clients in the first year and. And, and like you just said, you can get into this sort of heads down, like, okay, I did it. You know, it, it, what, what's the trigger that should make someone say, well, wait a second, like I'm, I've gotten past a point or I'm at a plateau. Is there something that happens that should cause someone to say, you know, like I, I should really recalibrate or have a, have an additional meeting with my CPA? Or is the answer just, you should be meeting with your CPA twice a year anyway, and they would be they would be the one to say, look, you should really think about a solo 401k or something like that. I think it's always good to have an out-of-tax season conversation with a CPA um, just because you don't know what you don't know and to be able to talk out loud and say what's going on in your business and your life and have somebody respond with ideas that you would have never thought of or it would have taken a lot of hours of research for you to get there is always a good idea. I think flags... Um, here, here are real flags I've seen with people who have, um, to your point, Jonathan, hey, this is going really well. Flags that I've seen those clients have are 
cash is stacking up in their business account because they've paid themselves themselves a consistent salary or a consistent percentage. And suddenly things are going really well and they're um, stacking cash in their business or they're stacking cash in their personal account. Maybe they realize they're making all this extra profit and they're distributing it to themselves, but their lifestyle doesn't really warrant using it. Um, or your garage is getting really crowded with toys. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering if you're going to say that. Totally. If you've noticed that you've acquired two more cars, a four-wheeler, three campers, and a boat, it's probably time to start thinking about some tax advantageous ways that you could spend your money. Oh, so funny. Oh, boy. We, we see some, some of that in the mirror, I think. And there's nothing wrong with using your profit to go buy fun things. But if it's at the, like, uh, you can't live on your, well, maybe you couldn't actually, it'd be a lovely retirement to live on your boat. But if you don't have any cash in retirement, that's going to be something that you're going to want later on. And so I think there's nothing wrong or shameful about spending uh, hard earned money, but be aware of what you're going to need down the road. Or if leaving a legacy for your kids means they don't walk out of college with college debt, um, just lifting your head up and thinking, huh, what do I want 15 years to look like for from now for me and my spouse or me and my kids? Um, and what does that look like? And how can I use today's profits for tomorrow's legacy? Ooh, how should we use today's profits for tomorrow's legacy? Title alert. <laughs> I know. Mic drop, Erica. Yeah. <laughs> so just generally speaking, what else do you think soloists, you know, especially in the expertise space, should be thinking about now when it comes to their money? Are there questions that we should be asking? Are there things we should be doing um, I think just the resounding theme in this conversation is just sit down with somebody you that you know, that you respect, that can give you a good opinion. And that might just start with a conversation with your partner, just to sometimes saying things out loud, even for ourselves to hear is helpful. Um, and I think so often we don't talk about money. Uh, it's been so culturally ingrained in us to to not talk about it. It's taboo. And so we just we just shut it down. And I think just opening up the door for not an awkward but an honest conversation goes a far a far way. And scheduling, like you did, Rochelle, scheduling the meeting with your with your tax preparer or or your financial advisor, whoever it may be that's in your corner, a great time to do that is between April and August. Uh, once you get into September, October, November, there's some tax deadlines that tie them up. Um, and you really want their undivided attention to be able to give you a well thought out um, opinion on, on what your situation is. So what do you do? And it's, it's funny, I actually had somebody DM me in Twitter with, with this question. So what do you do if your accountant is like one I've had in the past where they're so focused on tax returns, they're really not interested in having a strategy discussion. Is that an accountant that as a business owner you want to keep? Or is that the point where you say, okay, I need to find a partner to help me through this and you know, really partner with me to figure out how to, how to best use money in my business? Yeah, I don't think you have to... I... 
I'm not for firing a good tax preparer because they won't have that conversation with you. Because I think there are other people who don't do taxes who will have that conversation with you. And so, like, for example, I think tax preparers are very state specific. You always want to make sure you have a tax preparer in in the state or near the state that you're in, especially states like California that just have so many different different rules that are just different than the rest of the 49 states. You want to make sure that that tax preparer knows that. So I would never give up a tax preparer who who knows taxes like the back of their hand and who is keeping up on all of the changes of regulation um, every year. Because even in the past three years, there's just been an enormous amount of tax changes. And to have somebody who knows it and knows it well, hold on to that person tightly and get them your documents sooner than later so that they like you. But if you're looking to have a strategic conversation and um, and that's not your tax preparer, there are plenty of other people who will will be that for you and don't have to necessarily be in your same state because they because the there's so much strategy around big federal ideas and just um, all of the retirement planning is federally based. So as long as you find somebody who's willing to have a good conversation with you, listen to you, and somebody that you click with, you're you can have two people in your corner. It's always good to have you don't it's a podcast about expertise. And I think there's a misnomer that CPAs do taxes and they're the only people we should go to anytime we have a question about taxes. Whereas there's plenty of CPAs who don't do taxes, who do strategy or who do bookkeeping or any number of different financial planning that we also need in our lives. So just I just want to be clear. So when you say that second person, should that second person be a CPA versus like, you know, someone who calls themselves a financial advisor and is about you know, way beyond taxes? Mm. I think there are very good people outside the CPA industry. And I'm a CPA saying this, so don't all DM me CPAs for saying this. I think there's uh, a lot of good non-CPAs out there. Um, I think you have to really do your research to make sure that they are as good as their uh, website will tell you they are. Um, Because here's the thing about CPAs is CPAs every single year in almost all states have to get 40 hours of continuing ed every year. And it is really actually hard to to cobble together 40 good hours of continuing ed. And so by the time you do that, you, you just naturally are up to speed on so much if you're really finding somebody who has done those good quality CPA, CPEs, we call them, continuing ed, um, that, that you know, it's almost like a toll gate. If I see CPA after the end of somebody's name, I know that their state requires them to keep up to speed on everything that's changing. And there's just a little bit of insurance in there and knowing that somebody's not just got a pretty website. Yeah, I guess the question I have, you know, as a as not a practitioner of this, is how do we civilians look at a CPA and know that they're, like, as you said, that they're on top of tax changes? Because, I mean, I think we develop relationships with our CPAs and we like them. And so, I mean, how do you tell? 
Is it is it just about that? Yes, they're they're getting the CPEs every year, and that's enough. Or like, what are the signs for someone someone like us civilians that we've we've got somebody yeah. who's really good at this? So you can definitely get continuing ed on how to uh, use LinkedIn. So I won't say that <laughs> pulling forty hours of CEs will make you a genius, but. I think it's going out and having discovery call meetings with people and telling them your situation and seeing what they come back with. If they come back, A, if they don't want to have that conversation with you, then (laughs) it's probably not, you're probably not barking up the right tree. If they come back with, you know, two off the cuff ideas that could work for you that you haven't heard before, that person's probably someone you want to build a relationship with gotcha is there anything to be because i'm thinking like well what do i google for right if i want to get if i want to you know keep my tax preparer and maybe have strategic conversation with someone else i could google for cpas sounds like you're saying it doesn't really matter if they're near you if they're doing more federal level strategy type stuff and if that's where all the retirement stuff lives then that kind of makes sense um and and the so okay so that's one option i i would guess that another one is a financial planner i feel like that's a title i've seen but my impression of that is that they're just going to sell me products that that they are somehow compensated by like i remember talking to someone early on who always made me uncomfortable because it was unclear how he made any money because he was never like i didn't have to pay him so i'm like all right he's, <laughs> he's making the back end somewhere uh yeah <laughs> and it was i don't know it was yes. uncomfortable it was a super nice guy but i'm like how this it's it was, a, it was very uncomfortable for me not knowing what the deal was yeah so f- generally speaking and this is not true of every person with this title a financial advisor a wealth planner a financial um a financial planner would all be likely somebody who would sell you securities and they will have conversations with you about how to best save for retirement. Um, but the way to your point, Jonathan, that they're making money is it's um, X percentage off of you know these assets that they hold for you. If you can find somebody who is charging you a flat rate based on your conversation, um, I think it sounds like that would probably give you more comfort knowing your price, right? right. I, you talk plenty about kind of knowing fan. your price yeah. and in the same in the in the same way here, knowing your price is coming from that conversation or that relationship, um, not because of uh, how the market or how many assets I have in your in your possession. Um, and when I say assets, I mean like mutual funds and retirement accounts and all of that. Um, so that's and there are big there are big institutions that have brokers and agents and planners and advisors under their umbrella. That's generally what they're going for. I'm not saying they're bad people or they're not doing good work. They they will, you know, they have good education around market trends and making good um good, you know, um contributions into retirement plans. But if what you're looking for is, well, my business is growing like this and I really want my kids to have some money in their college fund and I also care about retirement and, you know, all these like there's just so much especially like midlife where you're kind of thinking about this any myriad of of things that that are going to happen in the next 20, 30, 40 years. It's 
if you can find somebody who's willing to have that open conversation with you and help you think through kind of your hierarchy of needs from a financial perspective, um, I think you've you've uh, you found a, a gem. But I just want to add to that, look for a fiduciary because it requires them. They are legally obligated to put your interests ahead of their own. And um, you, you won't find that in the in the big brokerage firms. That's not available. What do you, can you say more about that? <laughs> do, Erica, I feel like I should defer to you because uh, you're the expert here. Do you want to talk about it? I, I just have had clients who are fiduciaries and have learned the difference over the years. Yes. And so I, and I don't, and I'm not up to speed on this specific law. I believe there was a law um, within the past three years that said any brokerage had to be a fiduciary. So they couldn't um, basically make more money because they made more money for you. And so it had to be more of a flat rate basis so that they had to put your needs in front of theirs. Um, I. I don't know how we prove that. I don't know how we prove that so, that somebody, yeah. Yeah. So ahead, so Michelle. if you go to an independent advisor, um, they are required to discuss the, the, the fiduciary rule. And so if you go to Joe Schmo, CFP, independent, they will, they have to disclose I think it's called an ADV on their website. It's a detailed document, but in there you'll find out whether they adhere to the fiduciary standard. And you just, and the other way to find out is you ask them and you ask them to show you the document. And that's typically what you want to do. It's just a safety device so that you know how your person is making money and it keeps us all in the clear and everybody on the same basis. And doesn't mean that commissioned people can't do good things for you, just that you want to know how they're being compensated and make that part of your decision. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of confusion around professions in the financial space and what they do. <laughs> and I'm coming from inside the space and saying that. So, yeah. I had somebody refer me to a financial advisor who turned out he was an insurance salesman. And I'm like, listen, <laughs> if I want to buy insurance, I would love to talk to him, but I don't want to talk to him about like the stuff you were just describing. It's not where I would where I would take it. Yeah. There's the, I don't think that financial advisor is going to tell you if you should be an S-corp or not. So I think there, you have to be very specific <laughs> on what you think you might need to know and go after that in the person's credentials. Yeah, yeah, there was one more thing that you said, uh, Erica, I think it was in one of your emails where you talked about um, money shame. And one of the examples you used is when you're going to look for someone to help you with your financials, how to know when to run screaming. Could you could you talk about that a little bit? So I see this a lot and I and I not to stereotype, this is just what I see. I see a lot of women um, coming to me and I don't get as much of this from um, my male clients, but I get a lot of phrases from my female clients that are, oh gosh, I should know this by now. Or I, you know, because we're a because we're of a certain age, because we are an adult, we should somehow know how to do small business bookkeeping and owner distributions. Um, or because we started a business, somehow we should magically know how to do that. And so I get these women coming in and just with, 
you could tell they're wearing their shame and they're just so like, oh, this is a mess. It's my QuickBooks is a hot mess, or I should know this by now. I can't even explain the process to you. I don't know how you're going to figure this out. Um, and, and there's no shame, at, at least from me, um, at my firm, there's, there's no judgment. There is nothing that, um, that we haven't seen. Um, and also we don't, nobody expects you to know this. And, and if you find somebody who you get on the other side of a zoom call and they, you feel some judgment from them, run, run fast. <laughs> that is not a person to work with. Exactly. <laughs> I loved when I saw that because there's just something, I mean, just thinking about having the person that you want to have these intimate conversations about your money and they instantly open with shame. I, I, oh, yeah. Yeah. Run. It's, it's, it's sad. And, you know, it's so funny because in other areas of our life, for example, like, I don't know how to snowboard. Uh, I know how to ski, but I don't know how to snowboard. I've never learned how to snowboard. Um, I've never cared to know how to snowboard. Uh, if I wanted to know how to snowboard, I would go sign up for a lesson and learn how to snowboard. Somebody would teach me. But in this moment, I don't feel shameful or embarrassed to tell you that I don't know how to snowboard. It's just nothing I've ever done. It's not because, you know, like I didn't magically turn X age and expect to know how to snowboard. I just never learned. It wasn't applicable until the moment I wanted to snowboard. Um, and it, somehow that thought process doesn't translate into our money and our finances and our um, processes in our business. Somehow we acquire this shame that like, oh, I should know this. And and we get all cringy and, and, our, and our shoulders go up and we feel all funny about it. Yeah. It's like going to the dentist when you haven't been flossing. <laughs> like, exactly. Oh, this is going to be painful and embarrassing. Oh, the guilt, the guilt. <laughs> well, that, yeah. I don't know, is that a, if we left stones unturned here, that was like a, a pretty cool potential way to end. Yeah. Did we leave anything out, Erica? I could talk for hours about money, so. <laughs> well, if people did want to talk to you for hours about money, where should they go to find out more about what you're doing? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn or uh, Instagram. I'm Erica Goody CPA on both. Um, or you can subscribe to my newsletter at ericagoody.com. And we'll put the link up in the show notes so people can find it easily. Awesome. Thanks so much. Well, thanks for coming on. I, I really appreciate it. I learned a lot. Oh, it's amazing. And I just love how open you are and logical about all of this. This is, it's a process and we just all need to find our Erica. Oh, thanks, Rochelle. Well, thanks so much for having me. This is a blast. Cool. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye.